<clears throat> snow is beautiful, isn't it? First snow of the season. It's always exciting. It was a little too exciting on my drive over. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't no big problems, but the defroster kind of works really well on the passenger's side. <laughs> Not so well on the driver's side, so I was leaning over. <laughs> anyway, it was okay. <laughs> I haven't lived in snow in, or driven in it in a long time. <clears throat> a few years ago, I guess it's almost... I guess it's six or more years ago now. <clears throat> the years go fast. I spent most of a year on a long pilgrimage in India with a friend of mine who's a Buddhist monk in the Theravada tradition. Uh, some of you may know him. He's a well-known, well-respected teacher uh, named Ajahn Amaro. He was the abbot at uh, the Abayagiri Monastery in California until last year when he has moved to England to take over uh, at Amravati. And uh, I've known him since 1994, I guess. And uh, he had a year sabbatical and wanted to spend it in India on pilgrimage because he'd never been to the Buddhist holy sites there. He'd been to India for some conferences, but uh, not to the Buddhist sites. And I had I'd had the opportunity to go myself before then. So we... Um, along with another friend of mine, <clears throat> we kind of split the year as his companion and attendant. And during the period of time called the Rains Retreat, the Vasa in Pali, which is the 12-week period um, of the rainy season for that part of the world, starts the full moon of July and goes till the full moon of October, more or less. And uh, during that time, these... Uh, Monks and nuns in that tradition determined to stay in one place. They don't wander about. Normally, they're a wandering type. Uh, so we were staying in Savati, uh, or near Savati. It's now called Sahet Mahet. And it's, uh, if you've read, read the suttas, um, many of them begin uh, at, one t at, at a time the Blessed One was staying in Savati. I think more discourses were delivered there than in any other single place in, uh, in India, in that part of India. And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing place. It's amazing to go to these places because the old city walls from the time of the Buddha are still there. And it's the location of the Jetavana, the Anattapindaka's park, which is a famous setting and the story of that, uh, of this place that was offered to the Buddha. It's quite a lovely story of generosity. And we were staying at one of the, in these places, there are many viharas, they're called. They're like uh, rest houses for pilgrims, because pilgrims from all over the world come to these places. So in, in the more famous ones, there'll be a place from, there'll be a Burmese vihara and a Thai vihara and a Sri Lankan one and a Chinese one and a Korean one and a Japanese one. Tibetan one. We happened to be staying in the Korean Vihara there. And uh, we would walk every morning before the sunrise in the very early dawn, just when it was first getting light, we would walk through the fields and over to the Jetavana where we would spend the morning meditating. And in that park, there are the ruins of the, the dwellings of the monks. And there's one that's said to have been the Buddha's hut, his kuti. Ajahn Amaro would sit there, we would sit there together. 
and then we each had our tree that we would practice under um, in the morning cool. And uh, this very um, timeless feeling walking through the fields and people plowing them by hand as they always have. And um, often on the way walking in from one of these um, temples or, or uh, pilgrim rest houses, viharas, we would hear some chanting coming uh, over a loudspeaker. Often they put that out on the PA. And many times it was, um, I remember in that place, often we would hear someone chanting the Satipatthana Sutta, which has been mentioned uh, already uh, in this half of the retreat. And it's, it's one of the most famous and most beloved of the Buddha's uh, discourses. Uh, many people memorize it in that part of the world and chant it often. And so I thought I'd play a bit of it for you tonight to start the talk. It's, um, this recording is done by a Sri Lankan monk. They often do very beautiful chants. And uh, this monk's name is uh, Venerable Omalpe Sobita Mahatera. It's not quite what I heard in India, but it's close. And it is the same chant. And, and there's something, I think, powerful and, and quite beautiful um, and to hear the, the teachings in the original Pali language. It's a language that we only have because of these teachings. You know, the suttas were memorized in this language and uh, preserved as an oral tradition for a long time before they were ever written down, hundreds of years. So we have um, those nuns and monks who are willing to commit these to memory, we have them to thank for having these teachings available to us today. And I, I often think about when that when I hear them chanted, that someone has been chanting these things down through the centuries for almost 2,600 years. And, um, and so we continue that. Uh, we, we, we join that stream over time. So um, I'll see if I can get this going and hopefully my little machine will be up to the task. So it might be a little loud in front and a little not loud, but you can um, close your eyes and pretend you're hearing uh, some monk in the old days chanting.
तत्र को भगवा भिक्खु आमंते सि भिक्खवोति बदन्ते ति ते भिक्खु भगवतो पच्चसोसुं भगवा एतद्वोच एकायनो अयं भिक्खवे मग्गो सत्तानं विसुद्धिया सोक परिद्वानं समतिक्कमाय दुखदो मनसानं अत्थगमाय न्यायस अधिगमाय निबानस सच्चिकिरियाय यदिदं चत्तारो सतीपट्ठाना। One of these times, I'm just going to let that play. <laughs> It's a hard one to follow. <laughs> the mayor thinks I should do it now. <laughs> so beautiful. I'll read you the translation of, of what I just played there. And if you know any Pali, you would have recognized it, some of the words. So like so many of the suttas, it began after the homage, after the namotasa, with the words, evam me suttam, evam me suttam, thus I have heard. And all of the suttas, not all, many of them begin this way. I heard it said, I was spoken and I heard it and I remembered it. Evam me suttam, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country, where there was a town of the Kurus named Kamasadamma. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. And the blessed one then said this, Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana namely the four establishments of mindfulness. And that's a powerful statement to start a, a teaching, a direct path to freedom, to liberation, to the end of suffering. In some ways it's the, the most important, certainly the most, one of the most powerful statements that the Buddha makes in this discourse. And you know, this is what the Buddha, that's all he was interested in, this freedom of heart. It's all he ever was pointing to, the heart's release. And uh, we've touched on this sutta. Miyoshin talked about it to some, a little bit the other night. Uh, the Satipatthana Sutta. It's really the most comprehensive, detailed set of instructions in the entire Pali Canon. Uh, outlines our practice in vipassana. 
very clearly. And it's important to remember that in this teaching, in this discourse, that it's not some dis, some holding forth on a philosophical subject. It's it's meditation instructions very directly. And it's important to keep in mind when we look at this what what the Buddha was talking about, what he's pointing to with the statement, this is the direct path or a direct path to the end of suffering, to liberation, to the realization of of freedom, of Nibbana. We've talked about the Pali word dukkha, I think, a little bit already, and it will be talked about more over the, the weeks to come. It's usually translated as suffering into English. It's a very limited uh, translation. It doesn't capture the essence of this uh, word at all. In the Buddhist dictionary by uh, the Bhikkhu Nyanati Loka, he says, he defines it in part this way. He says, the term dukkha is not limited to painful experience, which we might think of suffering in that way. It's not limited to that, but refers to the unsatisfactory nature and general insecurity of all conditioned phenomena, which, on account of their impermanence, are all liable to suffering. And this includes also pleasurable experience. Hence, unsatisfactoriness or liability to suffering would be more adequate translations or renderings. And I remember a, a talk that I heard by Joseph Goldstein once where he, he had an interesting uh, sort of derivation of, of the word um, that shines a, a, an interesting, really important light on, on the word dukkha. Um, he, in that talk, he's, he spoke of breaking it into two parts. Du, meaning uh, a kind of difficulty or wrongness, and ka, um, being the, the hole where an axle goes through on a, for a wheel, a wrong hole <laughs> for an axle. And so you have this image of an axle that isn't fitting, a round axle in a square hole, <laughs> right? And so if, that, if you were riding a vehicle like that, it would be a bumpy ride. Mm-hmm. That's what Joseph calls it, a bumpy ride, right? So this, this kind of disharmony, this this lack of ease, this kind of stress, or it's, it's an unsatisfactory ride. And, you know, we're all going to get a bumpy ride some of the time, isn't it? That's just part of the deal if we take birth. But suffering, in relation to this, that's another question altogether. And it goes to the heart of the teachings and the Four Noble Truths. And there's a, a really important understanding here. You know, we, everyone gets life's up and ups and downs, right? The, the worldly conditions of happiness and sadness and joy and sorrow, and, and it's unavoidable, all of this. But the reason that there's suffering in relation to it is because of, of craving and clinging in the mind in relation to that. It's not inherent in the experience, in any experience of body or mind. The suffering is not inherent there. It arises dependent on craving, on clinging, on identification. And this, this is the teaching of the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. So it's found this, this, the suffering then is in our relationship to experience, 
That's what gives is the cause for its arising. And when there's no clinging, no, no holding, no identification, then suffering doesn't arise. And so in any moment, if we're identified, caught, holding on, then suffering may arise as a result when they're present. If they're not there, it doesn't. And so a fully enlightened being, a Buddha, they have the ups and downs, the bumpy ride, they get that. But there's no suffering because these, the, the cause of it has been uprooted. The clinging is not there. And so this is what is being pointed to with this statement, a direct path. This abandoning of the causes of suffering. <clears throat> I think Miyoshin in her talk uh, uh, gave the translation of the word satipatthana as uh, usually translated as foundation of mindfulness. The um, great translator Bhikkhu Bodhi says this, the word satipatthana should probably be understood as a compound of sati, mindfulness, and upatana, which means establishment. Hence, establishments of mindfulness might be a better rendering, capturing more of the original meaning. And then he goes on to equate the idea of an establishment with it's a mode of dwelling, a mode of abiding. So we might say it's an abiding in mindfulness, abiding in awareness. Might get the closest to satipatthana. We abide in awareness. And there's a subtle distinction that's, I think, important here is, is by saying abiding in mindfulness, abiding in awareness, then there's a greater emphasis placed on, on the attitude of awareness, on the fact of being mindful, of being aware, rather than on any of the objects. It's the, the, uh, the awareness itself, the mindfulness itself, that's the key. We can learn what we need to learn from anything. I mean, that's the beauty and the power of the practice is anything that arises in the field of attention in the mind and body, that's what we can pay attention to in experience, in our lives. Anything that arises can serve us as a vehicle for insight for liberating insight, for wisdom. And so this, this teaching on the four satipatthanas, what it basically, what happens there is, is the whole of our life, the whole of our experience, everything that we can know is broken down into four spheres of attention, you could say. Tanjev, uh, Tanisaro, Bhikkhus calls them frames of reference another way to describe that. And so we're exploring our whole life. We don't leave anything out. And this, this might seem kind of self-evident, but it's really important to understand this. You know, we have to have a relationship with the entirety of our life, all of our life, our whole experience is included there. If we don't, if it's not all in there, then it, our practice will never come to fulfillment. It will always remain incomplete. <clears throat> so we're exploring nature as it manifests in body and mind and looking at it through these four um, frames of, of looking or these four um, ways of, of looking at life. 
And if we distill this teaching down to a couple of sentences, what the Buddha is saying, pay attention to your experience and know what's really happening there. It's really what, what he says. He just elaborates on that. And so to re- I'll review these, these four foundations, four establishments, four abidings and the Satipatthana. The first is mindfulness of body, kaya nupasana in Pali, mindfulness of feelings, and this is specifically feeling tone of Vedana, Vedana nupasana, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling tone that arises with experience. Mindfulness of mind, citta nupasana, and mindfulness of mind objects, dhamma nupasana. Spoke about this briefly the other day. This, what what this dhammas, and, and I'll elaborate a little bit on on each of these. But I, I'm, it's not actually what I want to talk about, <laughs> even though I'm going on and on about it. <laughs> I have these long. Half of my talk is the introduction. Oh well. And so in this in the sutta we have body. Mindfulness of body is the first one. And in that the Buddha goes through a few things. Mindfulness of breathing, talks about in that in a few ways. He goes through the four postures of standing, sitting, walking, lying down, uh, moving about and ac- daily activities of eating, drinking, um, defecating, and so on, going and coming, the elemental nature of of materiality in terms of um, hardness and softness and uh, movement and vibration and flowing and cohesion and uh, heat and cold, this elemental quality of the four great elements of uh, earth, air, water, and fire, the decaying nature of the body when it dies, all these different ways that we can look at the body. And then in feelings, we, we uh, explore pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings in the body, in the mind, in the heart. Mindfulness of mind, we see whether or not the mind is affected by qualities like uh, lust or desire or aversion, delusion, these, these three roots of, of unwholesome, uh, of the great, great roots of, of defilement in the mind, you could say. We see a mind that is contracted or distracted or exalted, not exalted, concentrated, liberated exploration of mind in that way. And then these objects of mind, these lenses that we can look at life through in terms of things like the hindrances, which Winnie was speaking about last night, and the seven factors of awakening, the Four Noble Truths. <clears throat> well, I'm going to read the, the paragraph where the, in the sutta where the Buddha um, lays out these four foundations, because there's something interesting there. One abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having put away desires and discontent for the world. One abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having put away desires and discontent for the world. One abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful, having put away desires and discontent for the world. One abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, clearly comprehending, 
and mindful, having put away desires and discontent for the world. So they might have noticed it's quite repetitious. And so the Buddha mentions these four spheres of attention, but he also stresses these four qualities. They're they're stated over and over in this, that one paragraph. Four qualities that are present or that we're developing, you could say, as we undertake the practice that are important for it to unfold in in an effective way. So he's telling us what to pay attention to and he's telling us how to pay attention, how we pay attention to these four areas. And clearly he felt that they're important. They're mentioned over and over just then. And if we think about it, the way we practice might in some ways be more important, certainly as important than the specifics of what we might be attending to in any moment. And so there are these four qualities of ardency or diligence, of clear knowing, clearly comprehending, of mindfulness, and this idea of freedom from desire and discontent in regard to the world. And we could equate these with four mental qualities or faculties of energy, wisdom, mindfulness, and concentration. So these are the these four qualities is what I want to talk about tonight, at least for the rest of this talk. I'll get as far as I can. So the first of these ardency, you could say energy or commitment. And most of us probably don't go around using the word ardent a whole lot in our daily speech. I, I know I don't. I'm feeling really ardent this afternoon. <laughs> or you, you're manifesting a lot of ardency out there. We don't say it so much. And sometimes it's interesting to look these words up in a dictionary. This uh, one definition of, of ardency, it says it's characterized by warmth of feeling, which is expressed in eager support or activity. There's a certain quality of, of heat or, or even kind of a fieriness associated with ardency. It's, it's also defined as a characteristic of shining or glowing. So there's a kind of real caring, a real enthusiasm with ardency, this fieriness, kind of wholesome passion, you might say. And, and, then, and it implies, I think, a deep valuing of our practice you know, where it, we get it shining and glowing, we care about it. It's a, a kind of passion for awakening. This, uh, there's an expression, dhamma chanda, this uh, desire for liberation, for dhamma. It's sort of said to be maybe the one wholesome desire, <laughs> dhamma chanda. And so ardency in this way, it speaks to a, a real connection with our highest aspiration, I think. This quality of, of urgency, a kind of hmm, holding our practice as noble, holding this path as a noble endeavor, you know, something that's really worth doing. You know, we ask ourselves, what's worth doing in life? This short, this fleeting life. 
And we can connect to this quality of ardency by reflecting on, on what we're doing here, you know, practicing to realize our, our deepest, our highest potential, you know, to understand what it is to be human in the deepest way. We also might reflect on our good fortune to have this opportunity to, to hear and, and to practice these teachings. You know, if we look at, at the circumstances of most people in the world, they don't, they don't get this chance. You know, most people in the world are struggling pretty hard just to get by day to day and take care of themselves and their families. And, you know, if we, this combination of, of access with, access to, contact with the teachings, some interest and inspiration to, to practice, and then to actually do it, get those three things together, that's really rare. You know, how many of us are here? Not quite 70. So it is a rare opportunity. We can also touch this quality of ardency by really exploring and touching the truth of change, of impermanence. And in a way, you could say that that that's the whole of our practices is an exploration and an ever-deepening understanding of the truth of impermanence. I think Winnie was speaking to this quite a bit, maybe this morning or last night. And if we really connect with this truth that everything changes, you know, we can, that can be just sort of a kind of a jargon or Buddhist jargon or, you know, a kind of philosophical stance that we might adopt. But if we really connect to it and we see that anything we might hold on to in the moment is in a state of transience, is in a state of flux, if we really connect deeply with this then the mind naturally tends to let go. And we, it puts things into perspective. We see what's important when we connect with this truth. And rather than trying to hold on to something that's falling away and changing as a source of happiness, we turn our attention to a greater, something greater, something beyond that. Ardency also speaks to a quality of of diligence or perseverance, I think. This factor of energy that I I linked it to. And in great part, this is just the willingness, the, the determination, maybe the interest to begin again and again as we as we walk this path. I mean in some ways, this is the whole of, this is, that's the deal. This is the whole of the meditative life, isn't it? Is there anyone here who didn't have to begin again today? <laughs> Maybe like a gazillion times? I mean, that's what we do. We start again. If we aren't willing to do that, then our practice is never going to go anywhere. I mean, that's what I do a lot when I meditate. I start again. And we, we have to be willing to do that. But there's, a, there's an aspect of balance with this idea of diligence or perseverance or, or energy effort that's really critical. And, and there's a teaching where the Buddha compared right effort to the tuning of the, the strings of a musical instrument, like a lute, I think, is the image, 
Or if you get it too tight, you'll break a string. If it's too loose, it's thunk, no sound. It doesn't sound good. So you've got to get it right. That's the middle way. This is the middle way. So we have to have balance there for this diligence to have a sustainable quality. And sometimes we can take it too far. We can take this idea of perseverance, diligence, effort too far. And, and maybe that's how we learn. I remember one retreat, I, I put a note on my door where I would see it every time I went in and out of my room. I guess it was near the door. And it said, you can always be more mindful. Well, that sounds like a good bit of advice. You know, I mean, in my case, that's true <laughs> most of the time. You know, and you might think, well, this is really, that's, that's good. Little reminder, yeah. But I remember I told my teacher, who I was working with, I, I, th- I think it was Joseph at that time, this is some years ago, and he suggested that, that maybe that wasn't so helpful for me then. And that I might actually, by doing this, be subtly undermining myself because it was based on the assumption that I wasn't mindful enough. And so I made a new sign that said, don't make problems. (laughs) And that was actually more helpful (laughs) for the most part. I kept the old sign just in case, you know, I turned out just to be a slacker after all. But, uh, you know, so we have to... We have to be diligent and bring effort and, and a real commitment to our practice, this quality of ardency, but we have to be careful that we don't overdo it and, and undermine ourselves. Or, um, you know, we, we want to be careful that we aren't too easygoing and so relaxed that we just are kind of, you know, sort of mindful and, yeah, it's cruising along. And we don't want to make so much effort that we just exhaust ourselves with this kind of hypervigilance or this tension or tightness. <clears throat> so the second quality that was mentioned in this uh, list of, of four qualities that we're developing, <clears throat> bringing to our practice, is that of uh, clear comprehension, clear knowing, clear seeing, you could say. And this is like, uh, we could equate this with the faculty of wisdom wisdom in the mind and the heart. <clears throat> and so it's this ability to clearly see, to know what's going on in any moment and where we're not lost in or confused by our experience. And there's a Pali word, sampajanya. It's usually translated as um, clarity of consciousness or clear comprehension. And it's usually found in a a combination with sati in a compound sati sampajanya, a hyphenated compound word, sati sampajanya, mindfulness, clear comprehension. It's mostly used that way. And so if we combine this clarity of seeing with mindfulness, then it leads to a kind of intelligence in our practice where we're attending to our experience, we're bringing awareness there, and we're bringing some wisdom to bear as well. And it's not, in, it's not pointing to some kind of intellectual analysis. It's not, not that kind of thing, but it's a, a way you could say that we, we go below the surface appearance of things, the initial surface appearance of things. And so, for example, let's say that we're... Um, 
we're mindful of the breath in this first foundation of mindfulness, the first satipatthana, we're, we're noticing the breath, however we might experience that. And so we pay attention to the movements or the sensations that we know there. The way, how do we know the breath? Through movement or sensation. But then we notice other qualities. You know, we notice perhaps if it's long or short, coarse or fine, subtle or gross. Or we might notice the beginning, the middle ending of an in-breath and the beginning and middle ending of an out-breath. And we notice that it arises and passes away. The sensations that we see there, they arise and pass, right? So there's this seeing of their impermanent nature. And so we use this quality of of clear seeing to go beneath the surface appearance of a breath, I'm just breathing, to see um, the universal characteristics of all breaths. All breaths have those qualities of, of, impermanence and um, and really we we use it to get to if we see the we can see the impermanence we can see the universal qualities of a breath then we in that we see this is true for anything that arises all conditioned phenomena so we start to plumb the understanding of of the what are called the three universal characteristics of anicca dukkha and anatta anatta, of impermanence. Everything that arises is characterized by passing away as well. Because it arises and passes, because it doesn't last, then there's nothing we can hold on to there to bring us lasting happiness. So this is understanding dukkha very directly. We can't hold it, it's going away. It's like holding on to sand or water. And we see how it's arising because of causes and conditions. It's not amenable to our will. We can't, we can't make it be the way we want it. It's not controllable that way. It's causes and conditions that give rise to things. And so it's coreless. It's empty of something that we could call a, a permanent self or core. It's anatta in that way. And there's another aspect of clear comprehension I want to mention tonight that has to do with understanding our, our motivations, our aspirations, knowing what we're doing in any moment. And this, we can see this in terms of the question that we might ask when we do anything, is this wholesome or not? Does this lead to freedom, to happiness, to ease for myself, for others, or does it leave lead to suffering for me, lead to suffering for others. We look and see what is the effect of an action we might take? What is my intention, motivation behind that? So we have these first two of ardency, this balanced energy, diligence, this clear seeing, this going beneath the surface appearance of things. And then the third way that the Buddha told us to practice, the third quality is mindfulness, or to practice mindfully. And, you know, it's the four abidings, four satipatthanas, sati, four foundations of mindfulness. It seems kind of redundant to put that in there. But there are some key characteristics of mindfulness that I, I think are worth mentioning. And I'll be repeating some of what Yoshin said the other night. Um, 
in this, but it's good to hear some good stuff there. And so this quality of mindfulness, pure mindfulness, it's characterized by a kind of uh, non-judgmental attention, you could say. It's, there's no preference in mindfulness. Preferences may arise, but it's not inherently part of this pure awareness of mindfulness. So there's no distinction made by mindfulness. It's not choosing this over that. It doesn't interfere with experience. Try to get it to be a particular way, to change it. So it's this mirror-like quality that has been spoken of. It's just reflecting things as they are, without judgment, without preference. So in that, there's a quality of, of kind of a calm detachment where we're not drawn into holding on, we're not repulsed or confused by experience or what might be arising. But this quality of detachment, it's not like a, an aloof, cold, indifferent stance. It's, it's not that at all. It's actually the contrary is true with mindfulness. Mindfulness rubs right up against experience, touches it really closely, like a cat rubbing against your leg touches it directly, but it's not reactive. It allows it to be just as it is, free of any of our preferences or our judgments about it. And there's this quality with mindfulness of what's called bare attention, where we're not lost in thinking about what's going on or concepts or interpretations stories and and our analysis about what it all means, that may arise, but that's not part of mindfulness. That's something that may arise. Attention is bare in that we don't add anything there. We see things as they are, and and there's a certain purity in that, purity of attention, because we, we let go of agendas, how we want things to be. We settle into a connection with the way things are. We can know in any moment, right now it's like this. It's just like this. And in a moment of that purity of connection, that purity of mindfulness, there's a certain freedom in that moment. It may be fleeting, but it's there because in that moment, there is a freedom from the forces of of attachment, of greed, of clinging, of aversion, resistance, of confusion, of delusion. And so we can look and see how we are relating to experience. Is there real connection there? Do we set our preferences aside? And then finally, the fourth one of these qualities is this idea of freedom freedom from desire and discontent with regard to the world. And one way to understand this is in terms of concentration, samadhi. And without a certain kind of collectedness, stability in the mind, without some of that, we won't be able to meditate very effectively. We need some kind of collectedness. And so if our mind is distracted, if it's scattered and worried and running all over the place, then, then our ability to see with clarity is going to be um, limited, hampered by that. And so we could see this in terms of, of 
temporarily setting the hindrances aside. That's how it's spoken about. Um, And we establish a kind of concentration so that the mind has a kind of temporary purification in terms of forces, as when he was talking about last night, these forces that visit the mind and cloud and obscure the, the natural radiant luminosity that's there, the natural clarity. It doesn't mean that we have to overcome the hindrances before we can start to practice. Clearly that's not the case because the hindrances are one of the objects of meditation listed in the Satipatthana Sutta. And the practice itself leads us to a, a, a wise relationship to these difficult states as Winnie was talking about. But when we look at this kind of composure and and the kind of unification of mind, of heart, at least to some extent, that comes with uh, concentration, with samadhi, there's a kind of inner calm and ease there. And a kind of, at times, a, a joy and a kind of happiness not an exuberance or a happiness that we might think of. It's not having a good time kind of happiness. It's more subtle than that. But it's really um, essential in meditation because a lot comes up, right? Doesn't it? Everything comes up. And we need a place and a way that we can, can rest, a way to hold all of it. You know, a lot of difficult energy and mind states that are difficult and um, we need some ease, some stability to hold that where it can rest and, and to some extent heal the body and mind. And concentration serves in this way as well. And, and you know, this is an, it, concentration is a naturally arising mental factor. You know, it's a natural organic result of the mind and body settling into receiving the moment just as it is. And this comes. And, you know, we tend to think that calm and ease, certainly joy, happiness, we tend to think that they result from the kinds of experiences that we have. It's the usual way we look at that. If we have a pleasant kind of experience we like, then we feel happy and there's ease and calm, we, we think that it comes because of that. But they're somehow dependent on the quality of our experience. But concentration arises from continuity of mindfulness, whether we're looking at a single object or changing objects. And it doesn't depend on the, the, what we're paying attention to. It doesn't depend on our experience being a particular way. And there can be joy, happiness, contentment can come in the midst of something that we would normally say was a very painful or unpleasant experience. I know some of you have have experienced this, where the continuity of our attention gets very refined and something that we would normally think of as really a major drag, it's not experienced that way. And there can be this joy and lightness in the mind even though our, our experience is, is not easy, or we could say even painful. 
So I'll just mention these four qualities once more. And you don't have to remember this stuff. It'll go in there if it's useful. So don't sweat it. But this quality of ardency, diligence, related to energy, of clear knowing, clear seeing, relating to wisdom, mindfulness, relating to mindfulness, and this idea of freedom from desire and discontent, this relationship with, with experience, with the world, of, being unif- have, of a unification, a calming of the mind, concentration. And we can bring these qualities to bear no matter what we're doing, no matter what kind of practice we're doing. They're not limited to satipatthana practice of vipassana. You know, we can bring these to our lives, to our practice, no matter what. And, and what they really speak to, don't remember these, just think of it in terms of bringing the fullness of ourselves to practice, bringing ourselves wholly there, completely there, so that our efforts are not half-hearted. You know, it's not half-hearted. Our, we bring our whole heart there. And I'm adding a fifth quality that the Buddha didn't list, but I think it's really essential to bring to practice. And we've been talking about it a lot. And I think maybe it's especially important for us here in the West uh, because of some of our conditioning. And that's the quality of kindness, friendliness, of metta. I once heard a quotation in uh, someone's talk, one of these Dhamma talks, probably it was Joseph Goldstein. And I think this, this one short phrase is part of the, the code of the samurais in Japan. But it, it said, I make my mind my friend. I make my mind my friend. I make friends with my mind. And often we approach our practice as though we're setting out into battle. And there's language like that in the teaching, so we may have heard that. But we can set up a situation where we're in contention with our experience, with our minds, with our heart. And we don't have an attitude of making friends. We don't make our mind our friend, we make it our enemy. We hold it in this adversarial way where it's something that we have to overcome or subdue beat into submission. And uh, when I think about this, I I think of the story um, of the Buddha, if you read the story of his life, and there was a time when he was, he spent six years practicing these very extreme austerities, right? It's quite incredible to read his description of that. I may touch on it again in another talk. And he was... um, it was the practice, and still is the practice uh, for some people, to uh, try to subdue the ego through mortification of the flesh and uh, forcibly subduing the mind. This is one thing he said at that time. He said, I thought, suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my mind. He thought, let me try doing that. And then as a strong man might seize a weaker by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him. So with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained and crushed my mind with my mind and sweat ran from my armpits as I did so. (laughs) That sounds kind of extreme. (laughs) 
You might not be doing that. That's maybe taking ardency a bit too far. <laughs> and we might not go to that kind of extreme, but it's worth looking to see what is our relationship to our mind, to our heart, to our experience, to our life, you know? Is there some way that we are attempting to crush mind with mind? And you know, later in that recounting of his experience, the Buddha had a memory of a time when he was sitting just hanging out, relaxing under a tree as a boy, watching his father do this plowing ceremony in the fields um, there, this thing that his father did annually as, as the, the king. And, and he was just relaxing there. And he went in naturally into a meditative state. And he remembered that and his memory said, I think maybe that's the way. This crushing of mind with mind is not the way to go. And so can we learn to make friends with our minds, with our hearts, with our experience? And, you know, it's the only one we've got. So we need to be kind in that way. And it doesn't mean we have to love the contents of our mind. (laughs) You know, some of that's pretty embarrassing at best. (laughs) Some of the time, you know, downhill from there. And so I was, when I was thinking about this, I was remembering a time when I was living near San, in the San Francisco area and I was, I was taking part in a, uh, a study of hawk, hawk migration, these, these birds, hawks, um, raptors that migrate through the Golden Gate there. And I was on the, in the hills on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge and I would go out, I think we went out once a week during the season and we, were, we had these kinds of um, traps that are don't hurt the birds. And we were, we were measuring them and putting a band on them. And it was kind of hassling them, but it was a, for a good reason. We were trying to help protect habitat and understand where they live and how they travel through to um, help them, uh, help protect them. And so when you do that kind of thing, you have to learn how to hold a bird, right? Especially a hawk, because they'll put a talon through your thumb, which one did to me, <laughs> and they'll bite you. Because they're, um, that's what they do. <laughs> and so you have to hold them really gently and firmly. Because if you hold them too loosely, they'll flap around and hurt themselves and they'll bite you and put their claws through your hand. And if you hold them too tightly, you could injure them. So you have to, it's really delicate. And so you care for the bird and you care for yourself when you do that. And so this is a good way to relate to our hearts and minds. Hold them like you would hold a bird, really carefully, with as much gentleness and care, but in a firm way so that you don't necessarily let them run all over the place and run the show. You don't hold it so tightly that you crush it We don't crush mind with mind and we don't subdue it by force, but we hold it carefully and gently. This is a quotation from a teacher in Burma of mine named Sayada Ujotika. He said, how can you make your mind your real friend? By practicing mindfulness, by really watching your mind, by really paying attention throughout the day, If you do this, you will start to see the truth about your mind. And when you see the truth, gradually it will become purer and it will become your friend.
So I have a poem from Rumi to end with. I think it relates to what I've been talking about. But if it doesn't, forgive me and enjoy the beauty of it. Every object and being in the universe is a jar overflowing with wisdom and beauty, a drop of the tigress that cannot be contained by any skin. Every jarful spills and makes the earth more shining as though covered in satin. Make peace with the universe. Take joy in it. It will turn to gold. Resurrection will be now. Every moment a new beauty. So let's just keep sitting quietly for a moment or two and then I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. I know you're a captive audience, but I appreciate it anyway. And may the merit of our practice, this goodness be for the benefit of all beings, may it be dedicated to the happiness, the welfare, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.